Good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today's message on discipleship will once again seek to provide a warning for the church. Where too often we are convinced that righteousness can come through our efforts of obedience, we will find that, if we're honest, only Jesus alone is good. Only Jesus alone is faithful. Thanks for joining us today as we learn the most important step in discipleship is finding our identity in Christ's righteousness and not self-righteousness. Well, one of the most embarrassing stories of my childhood growing up involves giving in to a request from my younger sister. Uh, when, she was, when she and I were both little, uh, one of the things that she would continually ask me to do is to play dress-up with her. <laughs> now, here's what dress-up looks like. We had to be a little husband and wife, and we had to get all her animals, and we had to put them all around the table, and then this is what apparently in her imagination a husband and wife did. They poured tea for all of the little children in the home, and... I'm sorry to say, one day I gave in, and I played dress-up. Unbeknownst to me, my mom took a picture of it. And so this is locked in now in eternity as this embarrassing moment. But look it, see? I dressed the part, right? I I found one of my dad's old shirts, because that's what husbands do, right? They wear button-down shirts, and they wear hats. So I put the hat on, and... And we, we got everybody gathered together and see, that's what it means. That's what it looks like. Oh, of course not, right? This is only on the outside. It's only on the outside. You, you, could, you could dress up all day long. The thing missing, thankfully, is any form of covenantal relationship in this story, in this dynamic. It's one thing to dress up on the outside, And look one way, while all along nothing is actually changed in your identity. Because do you know what happened right after this? I put my old clothes back on and still never knew I have a picture of this. Forever sealed in time. I hope that you can catch the metaphor here as a warning to the church. We're in a series on discipleship. We know that a disciple is a true follower of Jesus Christ. And far too often in churches, when they encounter a message or a series that's encouraging the church onto discipleship, which is the maturing, it's the growing up in Christ, through the reframing of how you think and how you live, that you and I would go forth to replicate this same hope that we found in the making of more disciples. The problem is that far too often what you hear from the authority in in the church, is nothing other than dress-up. It's nothing other than a guilt appeal to you as a Christian, do better, pray more, give more, go to church more, get involved more, serve more. That's the whole list of do-dos. Am I... Am I right on that? Have you ever felt that? The, the list of do-dos in the church? These are all the things that you need to do in order that God would be pleased with you. We also have the don't-dos. Right? Do you guys know the list of... I'm sure you do. Right? You know what it is. You've been around. This, this, is the, this is the incorrect way to which discipleship gets presented. 
because it doesn't work when you play dress up. I remember growing up in the church in the 80s. There was a saying, um, we don't uh, smoke, drink, or chew, or go around with girls who... You guys heard it too, right? (laughs) And as long as you don't do those things, right? As long as you're not doing any of that, well, that means that God must be pleased with you. And here's the problem. Your list of do-dos and your list of don't-dos... Here's what they really make in this external form of dress up to play church is they form what's called self-righteousness. Now, if you can recall, when we started this series, we looked at the very foundational invitation from Jesus. If you're going to follow Jesus as a disciple, he says you must deny who? Do you remember? You must deny self By taking up your cross, which is the crucifixion of the old nature, the old self, the authority of you ruling your life on the throne of your heart. Deny self. And the Sunday after that, we looked at the greatest resource for discipleship next to the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit, which is his word. And today I want to give this next iteration in this series that we again hear a word of caution. Because if what you leave with this morning is that you need to read your Bible more, pray more, and do, and do, and do, and do, and do, and do, you will have missed what is the starting line for a disciple. And that is not an identity in your own self-righteousness. It's an identity rooted in Christ alone. Self-righteousness is really what you and I have gathered from being flawed humans on this earth. Because whether you know it or not, every single one of us has a version of this right now in your life. Not a single one of us is immune to this. Because we've grown up in a culture of which this is how we treat one another. If you do good, you get good. If you do wrong, you get wrong. And so you will... You will live your life in such a way that if you feel like you did your devotions in the morning and you got the laundry all done and you paid your taxes and you haven't cussed at anybody, that God is pleased with you. That is self-righteousness. I want to offer to you three ways in which I think, and I know there's more than three, but three ways in which self-righteousness will most often creep into the church. The first is with tradition. I don't have this in your notes. It may be worth you just locking in because pay attention to this. One of the ways in which you will define a right standing before God that his countenance smiles down upon you because you've been doing a good job today is because you have been following the order of that which we hold as the tradition in our church. This is the way we've always done it. This must mean it's the right way to do it. It was the... Pharisees in Jesus's day to which Jesus had his most extreme rebukes. Jesus says this to them, that you nullify the word of God to keep your traditions. And so very often in churches, this is the thing that people will leave with, with a sense of a right standing before God, because what did they do? Well, they were... (laughs) 
yelling at each other on the drive-in. But once they got to the parking lot, they put smiles on their faces and they came in the door. And they put their money in the plate and they shook hands and they drank their coffee. And then they went back to the crud of their life. Because that's our tradition. Do you know that Jesus, in his commission for you and I to make disciples, never told us to do it like this? Not once in Jesus modeling the creation of his own disciples did he take them to church or tell them to go to church. Oh, but we hold, careful with this now. Remember, I'm talking about self-righteous. We hold that there's a right way to do it. There's a right way to do it. Why? It's just our tradition. It's just because that's what we've always done. When Jesus made disciples, do you know how he did it? Debbie, do you know what he had? Food. Over and over and over. Jesus made his own disciples around meals. And then he would go and he would gather with those who didn't yet know him. And those who thought they were self-righteous said, look at all the rules this teacher from Nazareth is breaking. Look at all the rules he's breaking. He's not keeping in with the washings that we approve of. He's not making sure that his disciples aren't working on the day of the week that's called the Sabbath. He's breaking all these rules. In fact, they said he eats and drinks with tax collectors and with sinners. And the Pharisees thought they were right. Why? It was a self-righteousness that was predicated upon tradition. The second place self-righteousness shows up in our lives is with comparison. Comparison. Jesus tells the story highlighting, again, the Pharisee who stands on the corner and prays so all can hear, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like them. I thank you that I'm not like the Gentiles. I thank you that I'm not like those tax collectors. I thank you that I'm not like those sinners. What's going on in the Pharisee's heart? Where's the, self, where's the root of the self-righteousness? It comes from him comparing himself with others. Oh, and the scriptures tell us again and again how very dangerous this is. Paul writes to the Galatians that if you keep provoking and biting one another, you're going to be devoured by yourselves. He tells the Philippian church, you got to think of one another as better than yourselves. Not Stop trying to put your, oneself higher here. He tells Judea and Syntyche, two people who disagree in the church, you guys got to learn how to come together. And involves the church to come in that form of reconciliation. Because your greatest danger onto self-righteousness is when you begin to compare yourself with others. And you, There's no way you can sit here today and be like, ain't my problem. Ain't my problem like these guys next to me. I bet it's their problem. What have you just done? (laughs) Just compared yourself. There's only one person to compare yourself against. It's that guy. The guy that came off the cross. I guarantee that you are better than some of the people across from you. You're also worse than some of the people across from you. But not a single one of us is better than him. Not a single one of us is. And so you and I will fall into the trap of self righteousness when we hold to our traditions and when we compare ourselves with one another the third and most frequent in the church is when we are ignorant to sin ignorant to our own sins john tells the church that if you claim to be without sin you've deceived who help me out you're lying to who yourself 
I mean, if, if we were to all gather around you for intervention, we could tell you all the ways in which you're a sinner. You've got no problem with that. You're the only one that thinks you don't have it. You're deceived. You're self-deceived. A few other ways you can be deceived. You can be deceived by the enemy. Satan will want to deceive you. The enemy will come in and he will try to show you how good you are. This was his own fault, by the way. If we go back to the devil's playbook, you may recall that the root sin in the devil was pride, thinking highly of himself. And so he will tell that same lie to you and to me. And maybe the third and most common in the church in general today is the culture around us. That's the whole reason that we've been in this exodus from the denomination is because we've looked at the standards by which our church has said, you know, maybe it's not sin. You know, maybe it's not so bad after all. And as long as it's not hurting anybody, as long as the world around us doesn't be offended by it, then we don't have to call it sin. And so the culture will make you ignorant The enemy will deceive you and then you are going to be tempted in your own heart to deny it altogether. Tradition, comparison, and ignorance. All three of these will produce in your life self-righteousness, which is nothing more than you sitting in the judge's chair claiming to know good and evil. Isn't that interesting? What was it in the garden they ate of? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil that every one of us has that same disease thinking that we don't have to listen to what God says we can judge for ourselves I want you to see how the apostle Paul handles this in first Corinthians he says I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court I really wish I could say that better you've heard it right sticks and stones I hate being judged how about you do you, you enjoy it when people are in their hearts just judging? Yeah, I hate it. Paul says this. He says, I don't care. I don't care if you judge me. Do you need to hear that today? I need to hear that today. It, it, it doesn't matter what anyone else says about me. It doesn't matter what anyone says about you. He says, look at this. Paul says, I don't even judge myself. So there you go. He's already removing comparison right off the table. He says, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. He, he may and does have indwelling sin that he's not aware of. So far be it from him to claim, I'm good to go, God. Lucky to have me on your team. No, even though he has a clear conscience. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe, maybe you've been deceived by the enemy. Maybe you've fallen prey. Some of the ways in which the culture tells you it's not sin. And so you may have a clear conscience, but there could be something there already that the Holy Spirit is working on revealing to you. Look at Paul's conclusion. He says, it is the Lord Who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. I thought about asking you guys this question. A good Christian doesn't do what? What would you say? If I had you fill in the blank, quiz time. Question number one. A good Christian doesn't... What are you going to say? What's the worst sin you could think of? Like, I I was like, murder. You're a good Christian if you don't murder. Do you remember what Jesus says? Right? He's encountering, again, the self-righteous Pharisees. 
who thought they were the farthest along the discipleship road. They're ahead of everybody else. They're like, I ain't never murdered anybody. I ain't never done it. What does Jesus say? You've heard that it said, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, anybody who calls his brother a fool or harbors anger and resentment in his heart will be guilty of hellfire and of judgment. I was, I was driving up here this morning and I, do you guys ever catch it where like you can tell the light's red and you're coming up, but it's about to turn green. And so you're like, just like, if I just go slow enough, I can zip past those other cars and it worked perfectly. <laughs> Zipped right past that car and then pulled over into the lane because I'm going to turn up here on 95. I'm not sure the car I passed appreciated that I did that. Because the car that I passed decided to get as close to my back bumper as it possibly could. Now, that was my morning driving up here. Now, how do you think your sanctified pastor did? <laughs> Looking in that rearview mirror where I can't even see the bumper of the car behind me because it's so close to me, right? Does that, that irritate anybody else? Or is it just me? That, that's super irritating, yeah. That you know what I find? I find that as sanctified as I am by the indwelling God's spirit, there's a lot of depravity that's still right here in this heart. There is. I'm not a, I'm not a good Christian. Do you hear me, church? I'm not a good Christian. My Savior is good. In fact, this is what the rich young ruler gets corrected on when he comes to Jesus and he, and he says, good teacher, which is the blah, 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 blah. Right? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There is no one Good, except who? Except God. How would you fill in the blank? Question number two. A, so not something a Christian doesn't do. A good Christian does what? What's a good Christian do? What's your list of do-dos? Um, I've had more <coughs> Mormons come to my door. In their book, in 2 Nephi, it says that you are saved by grace after all you can do. That that's the form of their religion. And why they go knocking on your door? It's not to save you. It's to try to impress God that they would do good. They're doing what they're supposed to do, that God would be pleased with them, that they would be good Christians. Oh, but you made the mistake. There's none good. There's none good. Church, I hope what you're hearing in this introduction is that at any point where you and I begin to define and judge where our standing is before God, it will turn into self-righteousness. And that will only and always separate you from God because if it's from you, then who deserves the glory? You. And there is only one to whom he will not share his glory who is good alone. Which means for you and I that at the beginning, the starting line for discipleship, Every one of us has to lock down that my right standing before God does not come on any merit or measure of my own doing. It is only and always Jesus alone. Amen? Amen. Amen. We're going to be in a passage that Paul writes to the Galatian churches. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. While you're turning there, I want to begin with just three preliminaries. And and you can think, boy, aren't we halfway through the sermon already? Yeah, we are, but we're just getting started. The first thing I want to share with you is this. Everyone's a disciple. Make, Make no mistake of this. 
Everyone, everyone is a disciple. You're following somebody. Most often, most often that's a follower of, your, of yourself. You're, you're just following the things that you want, but you could also be a follower of culture. Uh, you could be a follower of what others place over you in their expectations. That I, I'm only trying to live up to whatever the authority tells me. That's what I'm following. It could be, and I think it is for a lot of young people, um, pop stars or athletes or um, superstars, like whoever's in the media, Taylor Swift going to the Super Bowl, whatever. <laughs> you and I can laugh about it, but the younger, the younger generation, right? K- kids of this world, that, that's what they look, that's who they follow. L- literally, when you click the button in Twitter to follow, Somebody, we're not even hiding this idea. Again, for probably the majority of us, it's probably less acutely aware in culture, but you need, to, you need to be aware this is a fact. Everyone is a disciple, meaning a follower of somebody. Number two, everyone will stand judgment before God. We already looked at the passage from 1 Corinthians, right? Paul says, I don't even judge myself, so save judgment to the Lord. He will judge the thoughts and intentions of your hearts for everything that has been done in the body, whether good or bad. We all will stand judgment. The conclusion of this, therefore, is that according to your discipleship, you will be either separated from God because you followed the wrong Messiah, you followed the wrong path and leader in your life, And the word for this separation is called cursed. To be cursed means to not work the way God designed you to work. And God designed you to be in relationship with him. That's how he has designed you. To be cursed means to be separated from him. Or, according to your discipleship, meaning who you follow, you will be justified, or in other words, reconciled to God. The word justified is a, is, a, is a word from court of law that means innocent. You're innocent. Now, raise your hand here if you're innocent. All right, we're all in trouble then. This means you and I need a substitute. You and I need somebody who can stand in our place to transfer that righteousness from them to us. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. Before, oh, I keep giving you a lot of befores, right? Before we get into, let's read it. Let's read it and then we'll go backwards. Okay, so Galatians 3, we're going to do a little Bible study this morning. Galatians 3, starting in verse 10. Galatians 3, starting in verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything Written in the book of the law. By the way, that's the do-dos and the don't-dos. Right there. Verse 11. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Everybody see it? The law says do. The law says don't do. And you best follow it. Except you can't. Except you can't. There's no one who will be justified. No one will be justified. No one will be reconciled to God through the do-dos and the don't-dos. 
So here's the good news in verse 13. This is worth underlining. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we may receive the promise of the Spirit. Okay, um, he, he talks here in chapter 3 and leads to it, even though, <laughs> excuse me, he talked about it earlier. He talks about Abraham. What is this business about Abraham. And so for us to understand what Paul is trying to communicate, we kind of got to go back. We got to go back into the Old Testament. For there was a time where all the nations were gathered to make a name for themselves. They were building a tower. Who knows what this is called? Tower of Babel. And God says, look at what these dummies are doing. I didn't say dummies. That's my translation. Look at what these humans are doing. Smarty pants thinking that there's nothing that'll be impossible for them. Stealing glory for themselves. Making a name for themselves. What do we call that? Self-righteousness. And God says, let's go down and confuse them. And so he, he divides them up over the earth into nations. And then a little later, God chooses one nation for himself. He chooses this nation through a man named Abram. God comes to Abram and he says, I want you to be separated from everything else. Leave your home, leave your town, leave your father's house. Be pledged in covenant to me alone. And so God chooses Abraham. And he says this little bitty promise to Abraham. I will bless the nations through you. All, all those nations who were gathered at battle, all of them, who then spread everywhere, every one of those nations will be blessed now through the nation that God has chose. Now, here's the thing. This, this is called a covenant. And here's the thing about a covenant. God will keep his word. This is really good news for you and I. You enter into a covenant with God, he will for certain keep his word. That's what it means to be in a covenant with God. Except the covenant with God needed, it needed an update because there was a problem. Everybody who was on the earth from the time of Adam right up to the time of Abraham, everybody kept dying. They all kept dying. Why is everybody dying? And the answer is because of Well, you know, Romans teaches us the wages of sin is death. They're dying because of sin. That's why they're dying. And so God gives an update in his covenantal relationship through a new guy called Moses. It's like 430 years later, God is going to deliver now all of the instructions as to why everyone keeps dying. Because everybody keeps sinning. Things that you shouldn't do, you do. Things that you need to be doing, you don't. That's called sin. And so God lays it out in crystal clarity, black and white. If you do this, you will live. If you do this, you will be cursed and you will die. I want to show this to you guys. Hold your spot here in Galatians. Turn with me in your Bibles back to the um, first five books in our Bible. uh, The fifth one, Deuteronomy. Turn to Deuteronomy Chapter 27. Deuteronomy chapter 27. 
Deuteronomy chapter 27. We're, gonna, we're just going to do a little reading because I want you to see the covenantal relationship God makes with his people and why this is so critical in what Paul has to tell the Galatian churches. Everybody there? You guys with me? Okay, here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 27, starting in verse 14. The Levites shall recite to all the people of Israel in a loud voice. Do you guys see that? Levites, they're serving in the temple. They're set aside to serve God. But what's it say? They're to recite to who? All the people. How are they to say it? Loud. loud right? I'm, tell them. You got to tell them so they hear it. All right, here we go. I'm going to be a little... Should I be a little loud this morning? No, I'm always loud. Here we go. Verse 15. Cursed is the man who carves an image or casts an idol, a thing detestable to the Lord, the work of a craftsman's hands, and sets it up in secret. Then all the people shall say, Amen. 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 Cursed is the man who dishonors his father and mother. Let all the people say, Amen. Amen. Thank you. Let's keep doing this. Cursed is the man who moves his neighbor's boundary stone. Then let all the people say, Amen. Amen. Cursed is the man who leads the blind astray on the road. Let all the people say, Amen. Amen. Cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. Then let all the people say, Amen. Amen. Cursed is the man who sleeps with his father's wife, for he dishonors his father's bed. Then let all the people say, Amen. Amen. Cursed is the man who has sexual relations with any animal. Then let all the people say, Amen. Amen. Cursed is the man who sleeps with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother. Then let all the people shall say, Amen. Amen. Cursed is the man who sleeps with his mother-in-law. Then let all the people say, Amen. Amen. They had some problems back then. (laughs) All right, let's keep going. Cursed is the man who kills his neighbor secretly. Then let all the people shall say, Amen. Amen. Cursed is the man who accepts a bride to kill an innocent person. Then let all the people say, Amen. Now watch this last one. Watch verse 26. Cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. Then let all the people say, Amen. Amen. I'm hoping most of you are doing good on the animal one. That's (laughs) my goodness sakes, right? It's that last one. If you are not carrying out all the words, all the laws, all the commands... If you're not doing them all, what will you be? You will be cursed. In fact, if you jump down, you'll see that just for clarification in the next chapter, verse 28, look at or chapter 28, verse 1. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations on the earth. That sounds good. Well, I like that. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you. If you obey the Lord your God, you will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. That's awesome. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. The crops of your land, the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flock, your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. Man, this sounds awesome. What do we got to do? Watch what the Lord says. He will grant that the enemies who rose up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction, but flee in seven. Awesome. I'll take that. Thank you. Verse eight. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and everything you put your hand to. The Lord, your God, will bless you in the land he is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people, as he promised you on oath. If you keep, keep the commands of the Lord, your God, and walk in his ways. 
Then all the people on earth will see that you were called by the name of the Lord, and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, the crops of your ground, and the land he swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open the heavens and the storehouses of his bounty to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God, that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top and never at the bottom. Do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today to the right or to the left, following other gods and serving them. However, you guys still with me? Verse 15. I was good up, up until the however. Here's the however. If you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his, how many? All his commands and decrees I'm giving you today. All these curses will come upon you and will overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. And then you can see the parallel here from the blessings. I'm not going to read the rest of it. I think, I think we got the point across. You tell me which of God's people in the nation of Israel accomplished keeping all the do-do's and the don't-do's. There wasn't a single one. Now, don't let me lose you on this because here is the problem. The problem is God made a covenant. Do you remember what the covenant signifies? Is God going to break his word? Yes or no? He will not. He will not. But how is he going to keep it if there's no one who can keep his law? He said to Abraham that he's going to bless all the nations through him. And so God will keep his word. But when we start, we get out the binoculars and we look around. Where can I find someone righteous? Where can I find one? Let's let's look at God's people for they have his law. Can you see any? Do you see anybody? No, you know what you see? You see a bunch of them who think they are. Because what have they done? They've played dress up. They've played dress up. They've put on the right clothes and the hats and they poured the tea in the right way. And Jesus comes and he says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look so pretty on the outside. You guys look so pretty. But inside, it's corruption. Here's what the text means in Galatians. Number one, the law doesn't work from the outside in. It doesn't work. Back in Galatians 3, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Because it doesn't work. Playing dress up doesn't work. You will not be transformed in your identity because you pray more, read your Bible more, study more, give more, serve more. You just be playing dress up. And you will have defined yourself as righteous because you judge what is right and wrong. It doesn't work from the outside in. I want to show you a few other examples of this. So Galatians a little bit further, Paul says, is the law opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have come by the law. But it doesn't. Which shows it doesn't work from the outside in. Or this from Romans chapter 8. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh. The problem wasn't the law. 
God gave the law. It's perfect. It's right. It's exactly showing you like diagnosis. Here's your sin problem. It's 100% correct. But you can't keep it because it's, it's weakened by the flesh. <clears throat> Number one, the law doesn't work from the outside in. Number two, the law proves that there is no one righteous. That's the whole point of the law. So he says this in verse 11, clearly no one is justified before God by the law. It shows there is no one who is good. I want to show you a few verses of that. We go to verse 19 at the beginning. It says, why then was the law given? Isn't that an interesting question? So what's the point of the law? I get it. God made a covenant with Abraham and then he updated it with Moses with the law. Why? Why did you have to give us the law? Well, because everybody's dying and we don't know what they're dying from. So the law is given because of transgressions. That's why the law was given. I want to show you a few other places. Uh, In chapter 2, he says, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the do-dos and the don't-dos of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. A little further in chapter 2, he says, I don't set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Rhetorically saying, it can't. Righteousness cannot be gained by the law. One more from Romans 3. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, Through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Paul says it a little bit differently in chapter 5. He says that the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. God gave that update to Moses to show all of us what our problem is. It's like we finally got the doctor's cliff notes to diagnose what's been going on spiritually. Here's how you're sinning. That's why God gave the law. So it proves nobody is a righteous Thirdly, and this is good news now, Jesus redeems us from the curse of the law. Now that you have the law, you're almost locked up by it. The law is going to show you all all the do-dos and all the don't-dos of what you and I would define as self-righteousness. All of it now constrains you because none of us can do it. God proved it to me just driving here this morning once more. That I have anger problems in my heart. I cannot keep the law. But Jesus redeems me from the curse of the law. Amen. Amen. Jesus redeems. I want to to talk about the word redeem. It means to purchase for your own. That's what it means to redeem. It means to purchase in such a way that the ownership has now switched. To be redeemed means you are possessed by God. You are owned by God. Namely, you have a new identity. You are not what you were because you have been purchased by someone new. And the purchasing here is coming from the curse of the law. I like how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians. God made him who had no sin to be sin for who? For us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God, which moves us to our fourth point, which is that Jesus blesses us with his righteousness. Jesus blesses us with his righteousness. In Romans 8, Paul says it in this way. 
that he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. It's met in us, not because you get a new list of do-dos and don't-dos, but because Jesus comes and he says, done. Jesus says, it's done. And he becomes your identity. Scottish theologian P.T. Forsyth says this, what we have in Christ's work is not a mere requisite or condition of reconciliation, but the actual and final effecting of it. He was not making it possible to be righteous. He was doing it. We are spiritually in a reconciled world. We are not merely in a world of empirical reconciliation. Can I explain what he means by that? It it means that Jesus' death doesn't just make it possible for you to be made righteous. It means it actually makes you righteous. It's, It's not that here now is a doorway so that you can now get busy getting righteous. So read your Bible, pray and give and serve and do, do and do and do and do. That's not the gospel. That is not what discipleship needs to look like in the church. You and I will be changed, but not by adhering to a list of dress-up requirements from the outside in. You and I, we get changed from the inside that begins to work its way out. That is Christianity. Not that Jesus makes it possible, but that Jesus effects it, actually finishes it with not a list of do's and don'ts, but very beautifully saying, done. And so this moves us to two conclusions. Number one is this. If you don't belong to Jesus, if you don't belong to Jesus, then you must keep all the requirements of the law perfectly. If you have not found your identity in him, then all you have is a list of do's and don'ts. So you better get busy because you can't screw up even one of them. You have to get them all perfect. The reason why I'm making a big deal about this at church is because I've, I've lived in the Christian environments where that's the pressure that was given to me. This idea that I have to now really to make God pleased in my life. I have to do more and I have to pray more. I have to give more. I have to keep becoming better and better and better and better so that he will love me. That's not Christianity. That's not the message of the good news of the gospel. You have opportunity to have your identity changed to actually belong to him. In fact, look with me back into the text one more time. In fact, uh, I want to read just a little bit more. Look at me in verse 15. Paul says, brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say and to seeds meaning many people, so plural, but to your seed, singular, meaning one person. And who is this one person? It's Jesus alone. Remember, God made the covenant. He has to keep his word. Let's get out the binoculars. Where's the righteous one? Where, who, who is it? Who are we going to find? And then, bingo, we found him. And that was the promise from the beginning. God made the promise to Abraham and to his seed, meaning Jesus. And Jesus invites you now 
through a new covenant. If you jump towards the end, he'll say in verse 26 that you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so the great conclusion for you and I. Oh, hold on. Before I get to that, I want to show you all all the problems with this first one. Um, Jesus says in Matthew 5, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Galatians 5, again, I declare to you, any man who lets himself get circumcised, he's obligated to obey how much of the law? Better get busy, man. Whole thing. You got to do it. James 2, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking the whole thing. In Jeremiah 11.3, we heard it already from Rosanna this morning. Tell them that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, cursed is the one who doesn't obey the terms of the covenant. So if you don't belong to Jesus, you must keep it perfectly. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. If you belong to Christ, here's the good news, church. If you belong to Christ, if you belong to Jesus, then the righteous requirements of law will be met from the inside out by the work of God's spirit because he doesn't say do, he says, oh, we got to get this together, church. He says done. Let's try it again. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus will give you his spirit to change you from the inside out because he doesn't come and say with a list of do's. He comes and he says, done. done. It's done. I was talking to Quint this week. He told me that. I said I was going to steal that for this sermon. So thank you, Quint, for that. So here's the application for you and I. You and I need to be covenantally united and identified with Jesus. Covenantally means permanently. Remember, if God makes a covenant, is he going to break it? He will not break it. He will not break it. And so he gives you an invitation through Jesus. This is why we've waited for communion at the end of this message. It's just a long meditation for you to prepare your hearts to remember once more the words of Jesus who says, this cup is the new covenant. That is found in my blood. He offers it to you. You need to be in a permanent covenantal relationship with God. Um, I want to I want you to turn your Bibles just I'm wrapping up as quick as I can. You turn your Bibles to Acts chapter eight, Acts chapter eight. Acts chapter eight, because you have the apostles going forward and spreading the good news And you have confusion culturally over those who think it's about a list of do's and don'ts. In Acts chapter 8, one of these people is a guy named Simon. And Simon loved attention. And Simon loved putting on performances and impressing people that they would think highly of him because he wanted a form of righteousness that was derived by his own judgment called self-righteousness. Acts chapter 8 verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus... They were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was what? Baptized. 
He got baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they may receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They'd simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of hands of the apostles, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter answered, May your money perish with you. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Simon, it says, believed and got baptized. But do you know what that was for Simon? That was just dress up. That's all it was. It was just dress up. It's a difficult message for me to really bring to the church because I, I mean, I'm an optimist, right? I just want to believe everybody's loving Jesus. Everybody's truly in their heart of heart saved. That self-righteousness is not something that you're holding to. But I think it's pretty possible that we might have people who might have gotten baptized. that even believe, but really deep down, they're just plain dress up. That their identity is in their own judgment of what is good and evil and not an identity of the one who says it's done on your behalf. And if that's you this morning, then how do you covenantally come into a relationship? Well, you repent. It's exactly what it says, does it not? Peter turned to him and he said, repent of this wickedness and pray that the Lord will forgive you. So I can't judge your heart. I don't know where you're at. I can only tell you what the Bible says. You need to be in a covenantal relationship with God to start the process of discipleship. And if self-righteousness is still a component in your life, here's your application. This is where you begin. Repent. Turn from that. And pray that God will forgive you. And he will. If you are, however, somebody who is covenantally in relationship with him, well, let me tell you this. How many days of a week am I married to Emily? Every day. Every day, I am in a covenantal relationship with her. She is in a covenantal relationship with me. You saw what it looks like to play dress up, pretending to be married. We, ha- we have that today in our world where people just live together. They don't get married. They just, they just live together. Do you know what they're doing? They're playing dress up. I don't want anybody here to be playing dress up. And so if you are covenantally united with Christ, how many days of week? Do you need to embrace that? Every day. Every day. I'm going to conclude with this verse from Paul. He says in Philippians 3, whatever were gains to me, this is self-righteousness, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I now regard all things a loss compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as dung that I may gain Christ and be found in him Not because I have a righteousness of my own or my own righteousness derived from the law, the do's and the don'ts. But because I have a righteousness that comes by the way of Christ's faithfulness. A righteousness from God that is in fact based on not your faithfulness, but on his faithfulness. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.